massive chat today with Central California diver Eric Anderson. Been a mad keen follower of his on Instagram and have engaged with him many times over the years. Uh, it's really cool to chat with Eric. Anyway, if you are brand new to the New Spirit Podcast, welcome along. I am the host, Isaac, aka Shrek, and you are in the home of interviews with spearfishing experts on authorities from around the world. Today, it's Central California. We're talking diving and species in Central California, sketchy shore dives, dirty visibility, diving with great whites, chasing lobster, cabazon, all of some of those iconic species they get over there in those huge kelp forests. And talking about kelp forests, we also get into urchin barrens. Uh, and we get into some of the science and some of the sort of the causes and the effects of these urchin barrens, which have destroyed um, some of um, California's kelp beds. And uh, it's a really interesting discussion. And I had some really interesting reading and research I did before we got into this chat. So really enjoyed chatting with Eric. We'll get there in just two shakes of a lamb's tail, as we say in my home country. Um, also hang around to the back end of this interview because I've got a voice message from Andy. Andrew McVeigh, who tells us the dumbest a story about the dumbest way to lose a spear gun. Andrew left me a voice message over in the Nooba story section at noobspear.com. There is a facility up there in the menu to leave a, me a voice message for up to three minutes, and I would love to include it in the next episode of the Noob Spirit podcast. And um, if you want to do equipment reviews, scary moments you've had in the ocean, um, lessons learned, anything you like, leave me a voice message. I'll include it in the uh, try and include it in another upcoming episode we've got another one in the next episode from brett whitman so noobspirit.com um, and leave us a noob story also couple of reviews for the podcast great show thank you guys really enjoying the show from idol juho uh here in australia also great listen relevant to uk spiros loving it guys recommended i was recommended this by my dive buddy over here in devon and i'm hooked keeping lockdown bearable and lots learned to improve my hunting this season and that's from uk noob in great britain thanks for that buddy uh let's hook into this episode oh quick another quick shout out for old man blue old man blue dive on instagram follow him along this guy is making some phenomenal phenomenal equipment i'm just looking at his website now in the packages section um he sent me a bit of a care package which is why i'm doing him a mad shout out but sent me a couple of shirts uh, a cray a cray badge a stringer this is some of the he's got a terrible business model this is some of the heaviest gauge equipment i've seen to date um he's not going to get a lot of repeat business because i think you're going to buy it once and it'll last forever so thank shout out to old man blue dive check him out on instagram anyway let's get into this episode with eric anderson boom This episode of the Noob Spirit Podcast is brought to you by spearfishing.com.au. They've been on board for more than 100 episodes, and I'd love for you to shop at spearfishing.com.au. They have a price beat guarantee, hassle-free returns, flat shipping rates across Australia, and you can save 20 bucks. For every purchase over $200, if you use the code NoobSpiro, you save $20. Thanks for supporting the Noob Spirit Podcast and shopping with spearfishing.com.au. Partners of the New Spirit Podcast, Neptonics.com. Neptonics offers the best spearfishing gear, spear guns, carbon fins, spear gun parts, and packages at the lowest prices. Go to Neptonics.com, use the code NOOB10 to save 10% of anything at Neptonics.com. N-O-O-B-1-0. Boom! 
All right, it's been a long time coming. Welcome to the Noob Spirit Podcast. I've got Eric Anderson here. He's a Central California diving veteran. Uh, we've had a sort of a bromance over the year, Eric. Um, I've really <laughs> wanted to get you on the show for a long, long time. You've been on the other awesome spearfishing podcasts. You've been on This Ocean Life, and you've been on Spear Factor with Brett. Um, yep. So I'm going to refer people to go back and listen to those episodes for even more of your story. But welcome to the show, man. It's awesome to have you. Hey, Isaac, also known as Shrek. Appreciate it. Looking forward to it. It's been a long time, as you said. So, yeah, yeah. Let's get yeah. after it. I think you fondly remembered my first few episodes, which are actually Roman Castro's The Spear podcast episodes. That's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's right. Yeah, those early episodes with Rob Allen. And then, uh, as you so kindly corrected me, that was the other. <laughs> <laughs> It's all good, man. Um, I could have just nodded and carried on like you didn't know and pretended, but um, man, it's awesome to have another typical Spiro dad too. So as I understand it, you've got no time, you're incredibly tight at spending money on equipment, and you've also tell terrible jokes. Is that is that correct? Yeah, that's that's pretty much uh, the basis of what I'm about. Really bad yeah. dad jokes, uh, no time, uh, kids suck it up. But uh, some recent events has opened up a couple windows on some weekends, so it's nice. promising. <laughs> That's good, man. Um, I I had a sneaky message with Aiden, so <laughs> <laughs> so Aiden um, Aiden Brown, um, one of Eric's good buddies, prompted me to ask you about your secret burly recipe for big fish. I thought we'd start the show Ooh. there. Ah, the burly. So what you got to do is you got to have a, a late night of some snacks, you know, really beef up the night before di- <laughs> night before diving. Uh, no, it's a great story. Uh, at the end of this last year, we were down in the Channel Islands, so Santa Cruz Island. We're mm-hmm. looking for lobster, some big calicos. Uh, in the winter, you can get some really good visibility. And Aiden went into shore and, you know, starts peeling off the suit to do his business. And he's hollering at me, screaming. I'm sitting in the boat and he's screaming. He's like, there's the biggest sheephead over here, the biggest sheephead. I'm like, well, shoot it. He's like, but it's coming after my shit. So I don't <laughs> want to go after it. <laughs> well, that's that's the trade-off you're going to have to make, man. If you want that big sheephead, you're going to have to go into your own shit. <laughs> how do you, uh, eat, how do you yeah. eat a fish after it's been chewing on your poo and people eat tilapia so there you go <laughs> <laughs> that's a good point and, and mullet's probably not much better and isn't it funny though that some of those fish like they smoke up and they taste good yeah yeah you know mm. that shit will really turn brown quick so, <laughs> <laughs> so what did you ask aiden did you guys eat that shithead i mean sheephead <laughs> no he ended up not going after it it cruised off uh no. while he's getting his suit on but no, there's great diving around the Channel Islands, so mm. it's an excellent spot up right off the coast of Santa Barbara, about five hours south of where we are in yeah. uh, Santa Cruz, California. Because it's my understanding, like, and I think from listening to some other episodes, the sheephead don't or seldom come up your far as far north as you are. Is that right? Yeah, they, they make it to about Monterey, Carmel area. Um, that's about an hour south of us in Monterey Bay. But uh, they might be up in Santa Cruz, but they'd have to be about three feet from my face to, to be able to see them because yeah. the visibility is so bad. They're a cool-looking fish, but, like, they don't look particularly smart. Um, and they're a wrasse. They, they mm-hmm. look like they're pretty long-livered and slow-growing. Um, what else? They, they chew up all right, or what's the story with them? They're pretty thick meat. They're really good eating. I think uh, there's a couple guys here in Central California, a guy, Matt Bond, 
who goes by Cut Professor on Instagram, but he's told me you can make really good sashimi with them. I haven't shot a lot, so I haven't eaten them very much. Mm. Uh, they start out female, and at about five to seven years, they transition over mm. uh, to male. And mm. then, you know, there'll be a few dominant fish on the reef. And if they get picked out, then others start transitioning over. So they eat a lot of urchin, which California has some urchin issues, but it's really hit hard more in Northern California where they're, where they're not at. Mm. So. You and me have dug up a fair bit of research and articles and stuff to chat about with the urchin. I, I want to dig into that a little bit later. Um, is, is geeking out on sort of like the marine environment and fish species and stuff, is that something that you've enjoyed as part of your spearfishing journey? Oh, yeah. I've always been a nature freak. They called me nature boy when I was a kid. I used to memorize birds and fish and all sorts of stuff. And, um, you know, after the Marine Corps, when I started getting into diving, I didn't start diving until 2013. It started with scuba. And then uh, saw a sea lion, got hooked, got into spearfishing after a while, realizing, you know, an hour down and with a spear gun is not the most sporty thing. So yeah, got yeah. into free diving through abalone and uh, haven't turned back. Oh. Unfortunately, abalone closed down, but um, maybe one day it'll open again. Abalone, like particularly in that Northern California, Central California area, it seemed like it was the gateway drug to spearfishing for a lot of people. Like, sounds like a lot of people used to chase them when when it was open, and that kind of opened people's eyes to the possibilities of spearfishing. Is that sort of what you've seen? Yeah, I'd say um, abalone diving was more of like a it was it was more of a community sport than spearfishing. You know, you went out, you played your abalone, you got your limit. Everyone came back to camp. You had a huge cookout that night. Uh, but for me and for quite a few others in California, it was more of a, an addicting hunt for red treasure, uh, the big 10 inch abalone. Mm -hmm. I would drive ridiculous distances, seven, eight hours in a day, you know, get there two in the morning, wake up at five, dive all day, drive home that night just to try to find a 10 inch app and turn yeah. around and do it again the next couple of weeks. So. Did you ever get a big one? Yeah, I ended up with uh, 11 10s before they closed the season. I started diving in 2015. So in three years, uh, I was able to get 11 10s. But my father-in-law, I'm actually in his house right now, hmm. um, Phil McReynolds, him and his buddies since the late 60s have been going after trophy abs. And one of his good buddies, Dwayne DiNucci, actually has the most in the world. He's got over 410 inch abalone. And over, Holy moly. He has, 30, he has 34 11s. So they, they dedicated their lives to it. Their wives hate them for it. <laughs> 10, 10 inches. I'm just like, I'm trying to, sometimes I get stuck with the American sizes. It's like 24, 25 centimeters or something, isn't it? I think. I think anyway, so. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I'm asking you questions that you're unfamiliar <laughs> with. I forget you guys are backwards over there. Oh, <laughs> uh, if you've watched the news over the last two years, we're more than backwards. <laughs> <laughs> nah, it's all it's all it's all forwards from here. We won't get into that. Um, nah, all good. So, look, we were talking about the urchin. Like, um, it's the purple urchin. They're invasive over there, and they yeah. they've taken a toll on 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 lots of things. I mean, we're going to get into urchin barons and stuff, but it's the red lip abalone that you're talking about, isn't it? They're the, are they the real yeah, big ones? The red abalone, there's multiple species in California, pinto, pink, flat, um, green, black, but they're all oh, much wow. smaller species. Um, you know, abalone are all over the world, and the majority of them are very small. The largest are the red abalone. The only reason they got so big is because Russian fur traders in the late 1800s wiped out the otter population all along, you know, 
Washington, Oregon, and Northern California coast. That was the okay. dominant predator of abalone. They, they shouldn't grow that large. Normally, they wouldn't be able to make it to that size. But now I would say even in Santa Cruz, I see really big abalone and there's a healthy otter population. So it's all about the balance yeah. of you know, different species and everything. But um, yeah, I mean, there's they got huge. The world record, I think, is 12 and 5 eighths. Don't quote me, but... I mean, that's, that's ridiculous. Huge. It's a huge snail. <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. And that's what it is. It's a snail, yeah. yeah. Um, the other thing it's wiped out is the red red urchin as well, which is another species of urchin that the purples must compete with in some way. Um, but ur- urchin barrens, like, let's let's get into it. Like, so, I mean, my understanding is kind of an urchin barren, or the, what do they call them? There's another word they're using. Yeah, urchin barrens what we say here a lot. I mean, um, now I'm not a scientist, but I am interested in the topic, of course, and I think it's a whole multitude of factors. It could be, you know, water temperature, um, ocean acidification, et cetera, et cetera. But what I see is areas that five years ago, six years ago, were full of macrocystis, the large uh, giant kelp that we have in California. I mean, mm. so thick you can almost walk across it. And then two years later, gone, not even a stem completely barren looks like underwater deserts and just purple urchin all over the place Mm. um to the point where groups of recreational divers go and try to cull them Mm. you know take as many as they can but you know they're like zombies i guess they can go almost two years without eating they can just go dormant and then come back to life if something you know comes around so yeah i heard it was even longer they can live and like (laughs) this is part of the problem like that that equilibrium you know we rely on it in so many different spaces in life you know like market economies are based on this idea of equilibrium and our ecosystems our human bodies everything sort of exists under equilibrium and with these urchin barons it's when they get so far out of whack that they're sort of almost beyond the point of recovery and it and they and because those urchins live so long like the row inside them gets poorer and poorer they become like in terrible conditions so they're of no nutritional value but yeah. yet they've still taken over this area and, and and it just destroys everything yeah and huge huge areas too like mm. hundreds you know hundreds of meters of, mm. of reef just wiped clean i was listening to your episode in and this ocean life and and um i think you were saying or it might have been with brett but you were saying like the kelp in your particular area is actually not too bad like you don't have too many of these urchin barrens. is that is yeah. that right so th- so this is just a theory of mine uh not based on any science just opinion <laughs> mm, yeah. but um i think the urchin where i see the most urchin barrens is where depth comes quickly so okay. you know like carmel or parts of northern california like mendocino where right off the, the the shore you can drop quick to 50 100 feet in santa cruz you have real slow shallow continental shelf so you, it takes almost a mile offshore to get to 100 feet of water mm-hmm. uh, the majority of our diving is anywhere from 12 15 to max 35 40 feet okay uh, i don't see a lot of urchin at all there's a ton of life uh, over the years i've seen the, the reefs i hunt get better while parts of California just completely declined to waste. It sounds like from, like I read this paper and I'll link it up in today's notes. It's called um, The Global Regime Shift Dynamics of Catastrophic Sea Urchin Overgrazing. And there's a lot of huge academic language and stuff in this paper, but there's some good stuff if you dig into it. But um, like, it, it sounds like once the urchin biomass gets over a certain sort of um, you know, uh, like uh, mass per square meter, 
they've and they've got a sort of a measurement for when it, that what that level is. It, it, it sort of just becomes non-reversible unless something dramatic changes. And um, yeah, and and like one of the things they were saying is that like oh, here here it is here it says in the recovery section it says simply put. Uh, I'll read out the scientific thing and then I'll try and explain it. It says, simply put, the available empirical evidence for rocky reef systems worldwide reveals that the abundance of sea urchins requires, required to form barrens is greater than that required to maintain a barren, and that recovery of productive microalgal beds requires virtually all urchins to be removed. Once critical tip tipping points in urchin biomass are reached, barrens formation occurs in one-third of the time that is required for recovery of kelp beds, which they say is a minimum of 18 months once urchins have been removed from the area. Wow. But it's crazy because how do you remove them from the area? Like, <laughs> and like obviously there are some natural predators. Like there's, you know, you guys have got a lobster fishery there. Um, mm -hmm. I'm guessing some of your, you know, your fish, like maybe do Cabazon and some of the other um, bony reef fishes um, predate on purple urchin? You know, up up in Northern California, I don't know if there are any fish that really focus on them. Um, I know the one we talked about, the sheephead is definitely one. Um, there may be a few others, but I think that's the main reason why they've been able to just overcome entire ecosystems, mm -hmm. uh, entire areas, you know, and named beach, say Portuguese beach and, and Mendocino was always an easy spot access where people would go look for Adelani. There used to be a lot of kelp there. You go look in the kelp, you find one of the rocks and stuff. It's completely barren and mm. you find like one abalone on top of a rock just starving with its foot all withered up because it's just dying. There's no food or anything. So Yeah, right. So so you're saying like um rising ocean temps, increasing uh, acidification. Do you think that um that lobsters are in healthy numbers along that coastline, particularly where you, you see these urchin barrens forming? So there's not, there's no lobster up by us. They're all pretty much south of uh, about Point Conception is where you can go for them. I've seen them up here though, but I think down in Southern California, there's areas in the Channel Islands. One would be uh, called Talcott Shoals. It's actually where I saw that great white uh, on Santa Rosa Island. That area used to be, I mean, a mile, two miles of kelp thick to the point where they used to harvest it with like these top of water lawnmower looking things. Now there's no kelp out there at all. Mm. Um, and those fish and species that predate on urchin are out there. And, and uh, you know, I see urchin. I don't see giant urchin barrens like I do in Central California. So there's there's so many factors at play here. And then I remember one of the things I talked about with Brett was if these are cyclical things, like is this a pattern that yeah. normally takes place, but it's being, you know, rapidly you know, sped up or mm. these, you know, these cycles are taking place in shorter terms. I don't know. I've just spent a lot of time thinking about it because you watch the ocean get destroyed. You're like, what yeah. the hell's happening? Yeah, for sure, man. Anytime we're looking in on, on something that's affecting our ecosystem, I mean, it, it is something we all care about and pay attention to. Um, yeah. Have you ever used them as burly? Like just like one thing, like in New Zealand, like it's pretty common, you, you, you pile up some some urchin into a bunch they call them kinna in new zealand and oh, they yeah. turn your dive knife around if you've got one of those dirty big scuba diving knives they're even better and then you just <laughs> smash them up or find a rock and just smash them up and then you sort of hang back and and just um the smaller fish come in and start chewing and then the snappers start getting interested and they'll come in and have you tried yeah. have you, tr you tried it there yeah i've smashed up a, uh, quite a bit of urchin in um 
it's we call it like uh, Norser in between uh, Carmel mm-hmm. and um, I would say uh, Julia Pfeiffer Park if you look it up okay. that area North Big Sur and there there's quite a few urchin barons and you know when those barons hit there's not a lot of fish around so definitely smash them up and try to bring something in for sure. Good to, it's good to feed the fish anyway. Sometimes I think <laughs> you know like. Some people are like, oh, don't don't shoot fish or break stuff just to, you know, like there's a there's a, a mindset around, you know, burly and stuff and like how it's mm-hmm. not not really, um, you know, ethically correct or something. I kind of disagree. Like I kind of think, um, yeah. you know, like it's just like taking your fish carcasses back and putting them in the ocean. I kind of like giving it back into the sea where it comes from. It feeds up, you know, smaller microorganisms and stuff like that that break it down and then bigger stuff eat them, and then I start shooting them again, and then it's all yeah. it's all one big circle. I mean, and I'm sure your- those people have had a burger or a chicken sandwich and never asked, "Where did this come from?" <laughs> <laughs> well, it came from Eric's mate Aiden, who took a shit and fed it to it. <laughs> uh, this is one thing like people people that just just eat seafood from um, supermarkets should probably listen to this podcast they might learn more about where their food comes from <laughs> um, nah cool man so do you see any hope for the urchin system are you just kind of hoping that it's a cyclical thing or have you do you have any ideas no I do I do uh, there's a couple guys I might screw his name up but there's a there's a guy up in, in northern California Joel Russo um, I'm not sure of his social media tag but he is really kind of spearheaded this uh, recreational community of divers coming together to, you know, they put events on, they get guys out there, put the spear guns down for a day, just go after the urchin. So I think a mix of that, those efforts, as well as the, the, the great state of California's fish and wildlife and their excellent science and management, uh, hopefully can come together and, and really get something done. But, you know, it's made the spotlight. It's made mainstream media. People know this is a huge problem, not just in California, but globally too. New Zealand and I think even South Africa and other places are experiencing this. Hopefully. Yeah, I had um, I had a couple of us there. There was like uh, Tasmania and Australia, like um, New South Wales and Norway. They've had issues with it. Like the 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 urchin overgrazing or the urchin barons as we call it like they've been um it's been happening for a while and like yeah. some some of these barons have been been happening since the 70s that we know that we know of yeah. at least at the very least so maybe it is cyclical and maybe maybe there is a recovery pattern and maybe it's just a natural cycle that we yeah. have yet to sort of understand the full the full circle so but it, it's weird you know when you see a destruction of an area and you see this urchin barren and it just grows and grows and grows and and yeah. and beyond three or four years you're starting to think is this permanent is this yeah is, exactly is this reversible you know because that's the scary thing no exactly i mean like this uh there's a there's a real famous beach in california called van dam state beach it's probably the easiest shore diving in the entire state because it's just a super protected cove it was always full of tons of kelp now it's all gone i mean i mean the abalone the they sit there it's not like they can move around and find a new spot so then they just all die off and the shells wash up and then the entire area is just gone and to your point when is it going to recover i don't think 18 months (laughs) yeah a lot longer than that well now that we've just like done a depressing deep dive into into something that that neither yeah, the was world's, really the world's apart. The ocean's falling apart. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
Aiden, Aiden, Aiden wanted me to ask you about um, <laughs> how, how do you fill it fish on a boat? <laughs> oh man! Well, I, I say keep them in the box and wait till you get back to, <laughs> back to the harbor. Now, now I shot I shot my best ling this year and um, was cleaning them on the boat because with kids, you know, you get home, the wife knows it's still like an hour process. Clean the gear, you know, do this, mm-hmm. do that. Mm-hmm. Try to do some of it before I get back to the house. And I was I had one of the fillets and it I literally picked it. I went to pick it up. And it slipped right into the water. And as oh. soon as I saw it go, I tried to dive in after it and couldn't get it. It made it to the bottom. I could never find it. <laughs> oh, man. That would that uh, hurt. That would hurt. Uh, but now, thanks, Aiden. <laughs> <laughs> this is a funny thing, eh? When, you, when, when, when podcast hosts know your dive buddies' names, eh? It's terrible. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> This episode of the Noob Sparrow Podcast is brought to you by the world's greatest spearfishing magazine, Spearing Magazine. There are news and reviews for the latest spearfishing equipment and gadgets inside. There's practical how-to and DIY type articles. There's spearing adventures from crazy noobers like you from all over the world. And uh, it's, it's a magazine that you can pick up or you can look at. And if you've got the digital subscription, you can flick through and let it inspire your next spearfishing adventure even if you're having a dry run, keep the stoke alive. Check it out at spearingmagazine.com. If you're away from the good old USA, though, check out the international subscription. That's at spearingmagazine.com. Simple, accurate, deadly. Use the code NOOB, N-O-O-B, and save $30 on any spear gun for a limited time only. Go to killshotspearguns.com. Check them out for yourself. Handmade in the Florida Keys by Ed Martin. Use the code NOOB, N-O-O-B, or head into the shop and say, Crikey, mate. And apparently Ed will hook you up with a $30 discount on any timber spear gun. Get your hands on one, killshotspearguns.com. Um, like, if we went back to, like, the start of your, your spearfishing journey, yeah. like, um, I, I don't know much about it. How, like, so 2013... How old are you now? Be 34 November. So you were 20, 26, 25? Yeah, I was 25. Yeah, my son was born February 2013. I was 25. So, so you, my were, wife, you were physically fit? You just come out of the Marines? Yeah, I was in the Marine Corps from 2007 to 2012. I was a machine gunner with 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines. And yeah. uh, anyone that says they're a machine gunner, just think they're a caveman because it takes no smarts or skill. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm strong, strong like ox, smart like tractor. Yeah, they're like, hey, you're big going that line. I said, okay, yeah. sounds good. <laughs> how, big, how big are you? How big are you? How tall are you? Oh, I'm like, uh, I'm about 6'2", uh, 235 on a good day. <laughs> All right, nice. All right. Probably about 250, really, right? Now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> yeah. No, but um, after the Marine Corps, uh my wife got me uh, scuba certified. That was a gift. Hmm. And I was all pumped. I did the class, got to the ocean, did dive, and they wanted to get out. And they're like, oh, we'll come back tomorrow. I'm like, what do you mean come back tomorrow? We're right here. Let's go again. Um, and I was just hooked. And right yeah. after that, I was picking my father-in-law's brain. He's been diving since the 60s. Um, yeah. 
been diving for 50 years, same, same group of buddies all this time, met them all excellent divers, but, uh, they had that old school mentality where it was like, just go out and figure it out. Yeah, or, yeah. Uh, you know, all right, see you, see you back at the shore. And they all go different directions for five hours. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, um, and so that's what I thought it was all about. So I got an old Voigt, a swim master spear gun, a 22 inch spear gun with two bands, aluminum, a Voigt. I think, uh, if you know what JBL is now, yep. uh, that model, it was an old brand. Okay. And I went out with that thing, no safety, uh, had a, had a eight, six, five scuba suit with a detached hood, no gloves, scuba booties and scuba fins Threw some weight around my waist and went after it and probably made a hundred dives that way. Wow. Um, and just, went for it for years and started shooting fish and learning. I didn't grab long fins till about three years ago. Um, wow. I was just stubborn. I didn't, I was like, yeah, this is fine. I'm good. <laughs> and for abalone diving, you know, um, the biggest ab I ever got, I could stand up in the water. So I didn't see a point in, in buying all that extra stuff. And then when I started getting serious about spear fishing about 2016, I bought some long fins, plastic fins. I was like, Oh wow. Okay. I get it now. And then I, you know, move my snorkel around, try this and that. You start tweaking your gear and you're like, okay, I get it. Finally bought a free diving suit, seven mil open cell. And it's like, oh, wow. <laughs> I'm <laughs> Why warm. did I not do this years ago? <laughs> yeah. yeah, man. Like, you know, what does your father-in-law think of all the new gear? Oh, he thinks we're all kooks. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, what are you uh, you know, they wore, you know, he learned from guys diving that used to wear wool sweaters Yeah, because yeah. wetsuits weren't around, you know, not until Jack O'Neill and all that craze. So, um, you know, the, he's like, ah, you, you learned to be a hard diver back then and, you know, you paid your, your dues. Mm. But I, I did that for a while. And then um, I went through a whole string of buddies of trying to find people to spearfish. I didn't know anybody. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is the old, the same story you hear from so many guys. I didn't know anybody and I didn't look at YouTube either. I didn't even think about looking at YouTube. I just went diving because mm -hmm. I wanted to learn and just go and, uh, had a, took a couple of people on the kelp that freaked out. I didn't have experience, you know, saving anybody. And I finally realized, all right, you know, there's some safety aspects to this. I'm going to get myself in trouble if I keep dragging people out in the ocean that have never done it before. Yeah, yeah. And then um, Aiden hit me up in 2017 and was like, hey, I want to get into diving. It's like, finally, somebody. And then uh, then it was just on like gangbusters because mm. now we have the, you know, the unspoken language. We can make eye contact. We know each other's thinking. We yeah, can dive yeah. and sink. So um, and now we it, just get after it. And, and working as a team, we shoot a lot more fish than I ever did by myself for sure. A lifelong bromance was begun. I um, <laughs> I read um, I read Aiden's um, article, recent article in Spearing Mag, and, and it yeah. was cool, it was cool to read his perspective on things as well. And I'm sure he'll come on the show at some stage in the future. So maybe we'll get Absolutely. both you boys back, or I'll oh, do, a, do it. I'll do a live one <laughs> while I'm there with you guys. That'd be pretty cool. But um, <laughs> what kinds of things like? So I mean, the benefits of having a long term buddy where you yeah. develop and learn communication strategies and, and an understanding that doesn't need to be talked about because talking on the surface is painful sometimes. It's, that's the time yeah. where you want to be relaxing or swimming to up current to the next bommy or whatever it is. So really, yeah. like, you want to keep the verbals to a minimum at times, I think. You know? yeah. um, so what are some of the things that you – what have you – from an ex-military background as well? 
No, we actually, uh, he's about seven years younger than me. Uh, okay. We met while I was working at a winery uh, in the town I live in now while I was going to school at San Jose State. Um, and then one day he just hit me up and was like, man, let's, I want to go diving. I, I bought a wetsuit. I went swimming in it. Let's go. And mm. it was, it's just been awesome since then. I mean, having a buddy like that, there's so many positives to it. I mean, right off the bat, we know the area as well. We come up with a quick game plan before we hit the water. Um, I know he has my back. I'm watching his. You know, we get out to the reef. Uh, Rochambeau, who gets to make the first dive. And from there, you know, whoever's the one making a dive, they're watching, you know, you're watching their back. The visibility is always so poor. You can't see each other, you know, in 30 feet of water. But we dive with high-vis float lines, so you know where your buddy is. You're following the bubbles. um, And you just need to stay aware and try to stay above them as best as possible, trying Mm -hmm. to follow them. Um, You know, you're not doing anybody any service or watching their back. If they pop up so far away from you, you can't do anything to help them. Now, I'm not going to preach because I haven't taken a a free diving class. I just um, have listened to this podcast. I started to take uh, Ted Hardy's uh, online courses. Mm. Uh, I just haven't coughed out the money to do it um, and time. If I have the if I have the time, I, I always want to go shoot fish. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fair enough, man. I get it. I hundred percent get it. And 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 let's be real honest. Like, you know, if you go and do a free diving course, you know, like if you do six hours in a in a in a, in a controlled environment with a free diving instructor, so, sometimes you'll learn more in that than you would in six hours in the ocean. But sometimes you won't. And you know, I'm not I'm not discrediting the the, the freediving qualifications because I, I think if everyone has access to a course, go and do it because there's stuff that yeah. you'll learn in those classes that you won't learn on your own. Absolutely. Like even if you watch YouTube and you do all the stuff like that, if it's a freediving instructor that knows what they're doing, that's what they specialize in. They're going to teach you stuff that you can't you can't learn on your own. But I hear yeah. I hear what you're saying, man. So I, yeah. I, I get it. And, and, you know, I plan to take one. I hear everybody say that too, but uh, <laughs> it's going to happen. But, you know, uh, we know each other's limits. We know each other's bottom times. Um, you know, if, if he's been down at 30 feet for more than 45 seconds a minute, because we're working so hard, you can't see anything. You're constantly looking for structure. But that's one of the other benefits of working with a buddy is, to your point, you don't want to talk a lot on the surface, but once you come up, if I'm at the end of my breath hold, I'm like, okay, I know I need to come up, and I start to see a ledge or something. Yeah. And don't go over there and start spooking everything. Just yeah. Get up, and 100%. I go, hey, 20 feet that way, big ledge on your left, or sometimes I'll just leave my gun down there, mark it, follow my float line, yeah. And then boom, he goes after it, and then he finds a big fish, and we leapfrog that way. Yeah. And it's always on that next leapfrog where I find a big fish or he yeah. finds one. But you go yeah. in there, and you try to screw it up, and you, you screw yourself, you screw your buddy over. Yeah, I love, I love work. <laughs> I love working a spot with 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 one or two buddies that yeah. just know what, exactly what they're doing. Like, you, you know, like if you're in current or whatever, someone shoots a fish in a hole. You know, unless your buddy's straight onto that and down and pulling that fish out for you. You're going to be putting a tying a float line onto that, and you're going to be circling back up the top of that drift with a boat. You know, like, the, you know, if you put a slightly crap shot in a fish, like, you know, mm-hmm. having a second shot right there is just, there's like t- having a good buddy is just like when you've when you've dived with a good buddy versus having no buddy, you can understand. Yeah. The Not problem cool. is is when people dive with shit buddies because mm-hmm. I would rather go diving by myself than diving with a shit buddy because not only 
they scare all the fish away. They don't watch your back. They don't look after you. As far as I'm concerned, I'd rather swim 50 meters in the other direction because yeah. I'm probably safer as well. Yeah. Uh, I don't oh. have to. I don't have to worry about them discharging their gun into my leg or something if I'm lucky. Yeah. I've dealt with a few guys who uh, I won't name names, but I'll be doing a breathe up, and I'll look around, and they're just swimming ashore. They just went in. They didn't even tell me. Yeah. My father-in-law did that to me one time, and I thought he drowned. I looked for him for 45 minutes in the bottom. I thought he was gone. Wow. <laughs> I came that, back. He was at the car. I'm like, the, it's, it's not the, 1968, man. <laughs> it's the worst feeling in the world when you oh, when you don't awful. know if your mate or your family is safe. Like, yeah. yeah. Holy shit. Like, I hate that feeling, man. <laughs> Even when your mate does a longer drop, you know, like, yeah. um, if we're in clean, warm water or whatever, sometimes I'll dive with guys that will they'll make two-minute drops. I, I don't. I, I, I seldom if ever make drops like that. But if, yeah. like a, a guy's gone for a minute, you're like, oh, yeah. A minute 30, I'm like, oh, shit, where is he? Uh, t- <laughs> two minutes, I'm like, holy moly. Am I going to have to do like a 20-meter rescue here? Like, You know what I mean? I'm starting to get ready to, you know. And, um, yeah, but it's, yeah, it's a bad feeling. I hate it. Even like, you know, like I've had situations where you're diving off the back of a boat and you're on different sides of the boat after a dive and you oh, can't yeah. see your mate and you're looking around and the person on the boat's distracted as well and they're not telling you that he's on the other side of the boat and you're like, you know, you feel like an <laughs> arsehole for losing your buddy too. So, oh, totally. Yeah, all yeah those and, you know, it's hard to find people who uh, can be as in sync with you. And it's hard to find – it was hard for, mine to, for me to find somebody who is, is – jacked and about spearfishing like my garage is a spear shop yeah if like at any time i could tie i got enough spear gun rubber and everything to tie new bands on 10 guns so i just yeah. you know in the aiden's like that a lot of people aren't <laughs> yeah so i mean what are the things like I'm, I'm not asking you to shine them on or whatever but what do you think it takes to be a really good buddy like obviously you've identified like stoke they they care yeah. they care but to me, it seems like there's other factors involved as well. Well, spearfishing is a lifestyle. I mean, it's not just a, it's not a sport. It's not a hobby. I mean, think about it. You go, you dedicate it, all of your being to doing this one thing where you're going to go into the most extreme element other than space. Mm. And you're going to go search for food where there's 14 foot great whites cruising all over the place. And your buddy's <laughs> going to watch your back, you know, you get the food and then you come home with them and you eat it and you eat it with your kids and your family and your friends. And then you post about it and you talk about it and you think about it for the next week until the next dive. I mean, it literally is a lifestyle. And then so finding people who are just like that is what really makes a good buddy because yeah. he enjoys it for the same reasons and the qualities. Mm. And then he's just smart. I know that, uh, he cares about his life. He cares about mine. So he's going to make good decisions in the water. Yep. And then the last aspect is that he carries a tourniquet. So if I get swacked by a white shark and I'm mm. coherent and bleeding out, he's going to slap it on me and drag me to shore. I mean, that's a big problem here in California. And uh, of course, where you are as well in the world. So a lot of, a lot of people think like, like a lot of sharks that we encounter in the ocean that are problematic with spearos, like bull sharks and tigers and, 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 uh, you know, oceanic um, white tips and things like that. Like they can be problematic. Like in New Zealand, they got bronze whalers and like various whalers are problematic. Mm-hmm. A lot of them are competing for the same fish that we are, but great mm-hmm. whites are something else. I've never dived with one. Like when they get over a certain size, they're predominantly um, feeding on, mammals like marine mammals like fish makes up i think it doesn't even make up much of their diet if any um so they're eating seals and and other and things like that like 
whales and whatever else that they can get hold of, I think. But um, so so it's that's a different experience, I think, than most sharks. Great whites are something different. They're yeah. they're unlike anything else, apart from maybe orcas, which are you know so, something else again. But um, yeah. What are some What are some of the things you've learned? Okay, so we'll, we'll go with um, tourniquet. So you get hit by a great white. What tourniquet are you using, and what's the advantage of using that over a float line? So, uh, I mean, I, I hear people say, you know, oh, I can grab my float line or I'll be able to pull my bands off, but the reality is you're going to bleed out in three minutes. Uh, if you hit your femoral artery or any of those big arteries or anything else in other areas, you know, 15 minutes, your heart's beating a million miles an hour, you think you're going to die, you're panicking, your buddy's panicking. So I use a combat action tourniquet. I attach it to the front of my dive belt. And uh, it's a pretty foolproof system. I've only had it come off one time, probably a hundred dives. I take a piece of uh, bungee cord and I make a loop, a, a, you know, double it up, tie a knot and make a loop that's about three inches by three inch circle. Okay. And I put that as a double wrap over the tourniquet on the front of my belt. Aiden does the same. That tourniquet on my belt is likely for him to grab to apply to me or vice versa okay. you know, or for myself. Um, we've talked about it, you know, the scenarios, and this is just from my time in the Marine Corps. Like you kind of practice what you preach, you go over it, you take it apart, you know how you're going to pull it together. You rinse it off after the dive, dry it quickly, keep it out of the sun and it lasts a long time. So, I mean, if you can just learn to dive one, you know, I see people dive with two knives or this piece of gear and that, well, ditch one of those and put the tourniquet on your ball. Uh, it, it's lightweight <clears throat> and uh, you're going to have a far better chance of saving your buddy's life or your life mm. if you're coherent and, you know, can keep it together enough. Can I get a picture uh, from you or a couple of pictures of this setup so I can include yeah. it in today's show notes? So yeah, if definitely. people go to noobspero.com forward slash Eric, E-R-I-C, I will link up pictures of Eric's um, tour- tourniquet um, setup. So it's a combat action tourniquet. Can you buy these things everywhere? Yeah, they're like 30 bucks on Amazon. Okay. Uh, there's other tourniquets, but it's the same one I use in the Marine Corps, so I figure it's, it'll work there. <laughs> it's gonna work yeah, there. And, and it's like you know how to use it, like, yeah, like exactly. in, in the Marines or any military. It's you Velcro, just... so you just unstrap it. You can yep. make the loop big real quick. You wrench the Velcro over. You crank down the plastic knob as tight yep. as you can get it, and then there's a little place where you can stick it in a hook and get another Velcro on. Ideally, in a real situation, you want to ride the time on there, so you want to know when you applied it. But you know, get back to shore. So, it's and then you a- know, I've heard people. Oh, just quickly, I hear people say, you know, well, I put it on the. There's a tourniquet on the boat. Well, you have to you have to swim all that distance back to the boat, and yep. he's lost. He or yep. she has lost all that blood, so it's best to just have it on you. Yeah, uh, I'm thinking. I'm 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 getting with your picture. I I haven't done it yet, but um, recent sort of stories I've heard and 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 your experiences sort of convincing me to to invest in this myself. I think. Um, so in terms of training for using one of these tourniquets, what do guys just buy them? And are they like a one-time use type thing that, or you can use them again and again? Oh, you can use them again and again. This thing is designed that way. It's got a little piece of uh, fabric material where the six inch rubber, you know, uh, plastic long pieces. Yep. Uh, I just rinse it with fresh water and let it dry and apply it. And it, it should work multiple times. Yeah. It's not just great whites. Like we can get hit by boat props. Um, you can stab yourself with your knife or. Oh, yeah. You know, Who was like, it? Oh. Uh, recent episode. What's his uh, Wayne. Wayne. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, even the most experienced guys, it happens. So, 100%, yeah. Yeah. And, so, you know, I mean, Aiden was asking you about that filleting in boats. I thought it was going to talk about like a cut or something. Because the yeah. same time, at this exactly the same time when Wayne stabbed himself, another guy dropped his dive knife like from about one foot up straight onto his quad, like his quad muscle. And, and the thing just stabbed straight into his leg. You know how razor sharp dive knives are. And um, it was like watching Ikea fish, but it was his quad. And... Those two guys did that at exactly the same time. And we were, you know, four four dories were out and two of the dories were bringing back injured divers <laughs> on the same day. And, like, it was, like, it was bizarre, man. And then, like, I was taking the piss out of Wayne, but, like, jeepers, it can happen to anyone, eh? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, too, is like, um, and it always happens when you least expect it, of course. Mm. You, know, you can be down at the bottom, pull your dive night out, and you go to cut some kelp. You slice your hand open. I mean, hmm. it, it happens all the time. Do you um, do you dive, night dive where you are? Uh, for for lobster. Yeah. Um, not too much here. There's a few guys here in Santa Cruz that have uh, bigger balls than me and, and go night diving for halibut in the wee hours. But uh, night diving can be real um can be real relaxing. I found, like yeah, obviously, obviously always... being scared of everything <laughs> beyond the sort of the the light of your of your you know you know the shadows are scary the unknown oh yeah but you're used to diving in two meters or you know six feet of visibility so for you it's oh, just exactly. like ah this is what i do every day <laughs> yeah santa cruz water is like uh i say the average viz is about eight foot yeah, yeah really good is 20 uh it can be worse in the early years from 14 to 16 17 in 2017 i would I would go regardless of conditions, just when I could go. Mm-hmm. And if it was a foot in front of my face, then I just stuck near the bottom and looked for a hole. <laughs> a hole <laughs> it is funny how viz can open out though. Like, you know, like yeah. you might be out in three foot of viz and then, you know, you, you know, you, you get out in one part and it's like the, the current or the eddy is, is making for this strange situation where all of a sudden you might have 10 feet. Yeah, and, it's, and then all of a sudden you can hunt, and you're like, I'm just going to stay here. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, it took me three years to realize to hunt on the upcurrent side of a reef. Um, and, and just to your point, I could swim through the first two thirds of the reef, and it could just be you know shit brown. And then I get to the head of the reef, and the viz opens up, and the fish are there. I, I always thought when I first realized that, like, God, why didn't someone tell? I wish someone would have told me this. You know, I spent <laughs> all that time, but you know what? That's uh, that's part of the experience, and that's why everyone should go through their licks and yeah. and learn. Um, you know, I haven't been doing it a long time, but I see a lot of divers today. They they gain all this knowledge in four months, and then they're shooting bluefin too. And I'm like, when's yeah. my turn to shoot a bluefin too? <laughs> <laughs> you just got to get yourself a sponsorship, man. Like, just yeah. maybe maybe eight yeah, or nine. All sponsors. those brands out there, I'm your guy. <laughs> <laughs> bluefin tuna Anderson. um so like as to your point with 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 dirty water diving um you know persevering through those shit days it gives you a treasure trove of knowledge and wisdom to draw back on it also helps you appreciate the good stuff when it comes along exactly but what are some of the other the other lessons you've learned besides you know heading to the upcurrent like um have you is there other sort of critical stuff that you think there is to like i notice with a lot of guys that start spearfishing like they want to stay fairly shallow they feel safer in there but when you're diving in swell like that's where all the stirred up crap is going to be 
Yeah. And um, sometimes it's where the fish are too. So like, yeah. it might be where you go, but but other times it's like, well, you're actually going to be more comfortable if you swim out another couple of hundred yards or whatever. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so, you know, like on the inside edge of a reef, you know, learning that, you know, the direction of swell impact where some fish want to hide or hang out, um, knowing what other fish species or bait to look for. So if you start seeing little balls of bait, start looking for, you know, some olive rock fish and some fish that are suspended in the water column, maybe going after them. If you find, you know, schools of blacks or blues, which are a, typically a smaller species of rockfish, and they school up a lot, start looking north of the bottom, there could be a big lingcod or other predatory fish kind of hanging out. So you kind of pick up on those little triggers. And then when you start to just, um, I call it's like in the military, we, you set a baseline, you know what you should expect. Hmm. And then when you start looking at the reef and it looks a little off or the fish are acting funny, but they're not, it's not because they're reacting to you, just something's going on slow down and start looking around because there's likely a big predatory fish in the area more often than not a big lingcod has made his presence known and the reef comes alive like oh crap <laughs> mm. how do you how do you track fish and shoot fish in really shit fizz because like half the time it's like you know you you just identify the fish and then it's gone so it's like yeah. what's that gap where you pull the trigger or you know and i mean the well, other thing with fog yeah. The other thing with firearm safety, like, you know, skyline stuff, you, you were taught never shoot it. And and I know a spear gun hasn't got the same range as like a 30-odd six or something. Mm -hmm. But if, you know, like if you're in six feet of is, you identify the fish and it's kind of a, a meter off the bottom, but you're flat on the bottom, you know, and you, and you shoot it, you don't really know what's behind that thing. Yeah. No, it's true. Um, you know, in, in really bad viz, you can lose and track, yeah, lose a fish real quick. Uh, more often than not, you just have to kind of have a feel and sense, okay, did it flick fast? Did it maybe go left or right? Has it kept the same speed as it keeps going? So you're kind of judging this all in about, you know, 1.2 seconds. <laughs> and you got to be quick. And the, and the other thing benefit I found too is um, a lot of guys use about a 70 centimeter or longer gun. Hmm. On, on In Santa Cruz, I have like a 28-inch gun, hmm. you know, real short. Um because you get quick track on the fish, you can move it quick. It's almost like a pistol. You're not going to have a 10 foot shot anyways. You know, you're making a five to eight foot shot. And then a lot of the fish really hole up. So they'll be under ledges kind of sitting still. Um, that's how we find a lot of them too. Lincoln and Cabazon will always be kind of hunkered down and something. Sometimes they'll spook easy. Uh, sometimes they'll sit there and you can poke them in the face and they don't move. And well, then it's kind of like, all right, well, I'm going to shoot you now. But <laughs> Yeah. Isn't it funny how, like, you can be on the same reef hunting the same fish and the, their response to you is completely different and the, there's no real yeah. other variables at play. It's just, like, you can't even pinpoint what the variables are because your body language is the same, your technique yeah. and your approach was the same, but the way those fish treat you and deal with you is just completely different. I find it weird. I, I'm trying to figure it out. It's just, and, and then it's a problem too because it's like some days it's like, shit, I'm good. And it's like, well, <laughs> no, you're not. Just the fish were really <laughs> dumb on that day, you know yeah. what I mean? And you go back there the next day and you can't shoot them, uh, you know, you can't shoot them, you can't get close to them, so. It's like some fish have personalities, I think. You know, mm. some species like, um, they say sharks have personalities, you know? When you start to see sharks and they have markings, you see them over time and they act different and they're honorary, some come close, some will stay far away. I think some fish, fish like wing cotton and others would be very similar, you know? They're, 
they're not always the same. Some are super curious, uh, some spook right away, some will let you come close. Others are like iguanas, you could probably pet them and they, and they don't move. So yeah. it's interesting. Do you think, like with your experience, like do you feel like um, fish will adapt to regular predation from spearfishing? Do you think that they, they start staying further away, they start hiding more and more? Do you, what do you think? Or do you think... Um, yeah, I mean, I would say in Santa Cruz, there's only so many spots. And when the weather does open up and you get good conditions, it can get a lot of pressure. I bet they probably push off the reef a little bit if guys are going like a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, then a Tuesday, Thursday or something like that. But um, I, haven't, I haven't seen it too much. Hmm. I don't know. I mean. That's because where you go, no one's there. If your buddy had a blackout on your next spearfishing trip, think, what would the outcome of that be? Do you know how to revive someone from a blackout? Would you even be in a position to do something about it? Or would you be diving, chasing after a fish as your buddy sinks down to the bottom of the ocean? Do you know where most blackouts happen? Do you know what you can do to minimize your risk of having a blackout? My name is Ted Hardy, and I'm the founder of freedivingsafety.com. In my free online course, you will learn the truth about shallow water blackout, the myth of, I don't push myself, I know my limits, I'm in tune with my body, how to minimize your risk of having a blackout, and most importantly, how to save your buddy's life if they have one. Visit freedivingsafety.com to sign up for your free course today. Dive safe out there. It's it's not even that hard. Aiden had one more little story to ask you about. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm sure he, he'd probably give me some more at some stage. Um, he wanted me to ask you about diving without a float line. <laughs> well, it's funny. If you read that Spearing Magazine article that day, um, it was a great decision and a bad decision, I'll say. So he scored a huge fish. But we went out in really poor conditions. I mean, rough as shit. And uh, it was a shore dive. And we're trying to stay together. But, I mean, like, whitewash foam it was like a river mouth pushing all over the place mm. and i hear him hollering maybe 15 20 feet away he's like i got something big and right then i'm hollering you at lost him. Your fin. i lost well he so this is funny I, I i he yells at me i got something big i yelled at him i lost my spear gun and i took i had it i didn't put a float line on that day for whatever reason and it started drifting it just drifted off so he wants me to come check out his fish i'm yelling at him to come help me find my gun then he tries to come out there he breaks his fin in half then he's like half waddling swimming all over the place and i find the gun and we're finally like let's get the hell out of here (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's right i'm remembering it all now oh yeah it was just uh no, it was a great it was a it was one of those days where we were both been out of the water for about three four weeks and and we just needed to get in and get some for it. <laughs> get some vitamin C. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, and- <laughs> with with like with jumping in on in big surf, like it seems like you do a little bit of that. Like you, you yeah. like you got cliff tops and then you know, you, you guys are jumping out into swell. How do you plan your exit conditions, like your exit spots and points and stuff? And what's the what's your sort of school of um, thought with planning do you have a plan a and a plan b or yeah so i always try to find that first spot whether it's like a little muscle shoal or somewhere i can climb out that's what i try to find first getting in is the easy part 
Hmm. Getting out, of course, is a difficult part. And then I always try to have a spot where, okay, if, if I can't get out here and this cliff is, is to shit, where's the next easy access? Can I swim somewhere? Is there a beach nearby? So in Santa Cruz, I used to jump in off the muscle shoals and then try to get back in that way and you get washed around. And then once you get to a point where you realize, all right, this is not going to go in my favor, you bail out, get out of there. Uh, if you yeah. can, and then go to a nearby beach and just make the, the couple hundred yard walk back to your car instead of getting out right where it is. In, in Big Sur, um, a lot of guys, you have to hike down crazy cliffs. You jump into the water. It's really rough. Um, unfortunately, you know, sometimes guys do pass away by doing that kind of diving. Mm. Um, so it's like it's risk and reward. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah. How bad do you want to go? But um yeah, I've, I've got banged around a couple times. I will say uh, one piece of advice for anyone who jumps into six, eight foot surf to go spear fishing is don't fight the water. Um, really try to go with it. It will push you up onto the rock. Just be ready to latch on like an iguana when you can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and those yeah. guys in Hawaii, you see those guys, they jump into uh, what's his name? Um, I think it's Brian Fern, Uncle Learn You How. Uh, if you've been following him and his videos, but he's done some, um, gnarly shore dives and I've seen some videos of what's his, uh, Justin Lee and Ryan Myers. And I mean, they jump into crazy surf because mm-hmm. uh, they, they get out to the outside to do their diving, but then they have to come back in and it's like running the gauntlet. You know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> do you find like, um, one thing for me is when you decide that you're going to do it like, and you commit to it, you just got to go hundred percent. Like, oh, yeah. there's, there's no, like, halfway then going, oh, no, I can't do it. Now I'll just turn around and no. you, exactly. you, you, you're committed, eh? It's like balls to the wall kind of stuff. Exactly. You're committed. you got to give it your all, your attention, um, you know, and you got to be thinking the whole time and have good situational awareness. So, and and you, it's not like you just show up and jump in the water. I'll watch the water for half an hour mm-hmm. and I'll look at like the best possible spot. And then I'll start, you know, timing it and be like, okay, you know, the first couple, you know, the set's going to come, the bigger set's going to come in. It's going to do this, wait for that second or third set, that low, low set or right after the closeout and then make your entrance and the same coming in too. Like you have to be comfortable sitting offshore for a little bit and just sitting there and waiting for that right moment and knowing where it's going to be. And then you beeline for it. Um, and then if you don't make that moment, bail out if you can or hold on for dear mm-hmm. life. <laughs> as, and as a, as a guy that's done a lot of shore diving, um, I've noticed recently, like you've started doing a fair bit more boat diving. How, yeah. how have you found that transition? Is that, is that, um, has that made spearfishing even better for you or? You know, I still love, I love both. I think uh, a shore dive is quick when it's uh, time dependent, but uh, Aiden's got the 18 foot fish, right? And I mean, I love that boat. It's nice when your buddy has a boat. <laughs> I don't have to worry about anything. Yeah. <laughs> He's got all that to worry, but uh, yeah. no, I, it's so nice to be able to go out and, and we'll anchor. Um, sometimes if we're trying to bounce and just check out a spot, you know, I'll run buddy quick and he'll just make a drop like, Oh yeah, it's good. Throw it down kind of thing. But, um, it's fun. Plus being able to go out to the channel islands for us is, is pretty amazing. How have you guys figured out the electronics and stuff? Like, are you getting good at like using the gain and looking for bait and all that sort of stuff? Like how, how, how do you find spots on the sounder? Yeah. So we do a lot of fishing as well. 
And okay. by fishing, we were able to find quite a few spots. And then just from a lot of the shore dives, being able to find spots. But then we'll just run around and look for reef. Um, and then more often than not, we'll just try a lot of new spots. That's how we find them. Just anchor up and go swim around for an hour, give it an hour. If it's nothing, pull up and go try another spot. Um, but more often than not, a lot of these reefs, if you find a good kelp bed and you start to see fish after about 10 minutes, you're going to start finding stuff. What's the sort of like... You know, you, you're jumping in at new spots and there's always a temptation to stay. But then yeah. a lot of guys will say you get in, you you spend three minutes and if it's not on, you get back in the boat and you move and you find another spot. What's yeah. your rule of thumb for that? Like, Because you can waste a lot of time exploring shit terrain. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think for us, um, you know, we give it some more time just based on the conditions. If I had that visibility and, you know, you made a drop and you can see, okay, there's nothing cruising by, then then I would go the three-minute rule. But I'm not going to find a ledge in three minutes or, mm-hmm. you know, anything like mm-hmm. that. But about, you know, an hour. And it also depends how, how much time we have out. If, yep. if, you know, we've got six hours total, then we want to maximize our time. But it's funny, too, because then to that point, sometimes you you don't leave. And you give a spot three hours and nothing. And then at the very end, you find, you know, some solid fish. And I can't tell you how many times that's happened. Mm-hmm. So it's just um, my biggest lincoln in Santa Cruz was right around 17 pounds, which is pretty good. But, you know, guys do shoot 25-plus pounders up in northern, the northern parts of California. But we we dove for almost six hours that day from shore. Mm. I tracked our uh, what I thought was our pattern. It was like three miles on Google Earth, you know, where we went in this reef. Yeah. And on the way back, right in front of the beach where we went in, I checked a ledge, like the last ledge I checked, and I shoot my personal best link for – you know, the local water. So it's just how it goes. That same dive too. I, I, uh, I think I saw juvenile white shark. It was too barrel chested to be anything else. It swam about 10 feet underneath me and just kept going. And Aiden wasn't far away. And I was like, Hey, gave him the signal. You know, it's always funny to me when people see a shark and they're like, shark. (laughs) (laughs) You wanted to come over to you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like you're doing the exact thing to get the shark to pay attention (laughs) to. Flash a lot and yell. You'll swim off. (laughs) Yeah. You really want like confident body language and, and, um, Mm -hmm. you know, even if you're not feeling it, you've got to still make yourself, you know, like I've, I had this conversation on another podcast a little while ago. It's like, all we're trying to do is disincentivize them attacking us because they know that we're not really much of a threat. But all you need to be is a little threat because mm-hmm. a big shark didn't get big by being dumb. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, Great Whites is something else, man. I don't envy you diving with them in dirty water. At least you've got a yeah. good buddy and a tourniquet and you guys know how to use it. Like, yeah, um, and, we, and we did both uh, at the end of this last year get the shark shield. Yeah, um, I haven't put the electric rope on yet. A lot of guys swear by them. Hmm. Um, I'm going to give it a whirl. It's, it's. I mean, why not? I've heard mixed. Well, actually, I've heard mostly positive things to be honest. And I've yeah. dived with the guy that had one on. The only problem was he kept giving me shocks when I'd swim around him. <laughs> yeah. um, he just sort of seeker flexed it into the side of a, which is like a, an epoxy or something like it's a, it's an adherent to, sort of, and he ran it down the side channel of his one of his fins. So that, oh, I remember that episode. Yeah. And I was thinking about how he did that, and it kind of kept it back away a little bit. Yeah, yeah. and and But every time I would swim around back, I'm like, just getting these shocks off the bloody <laughs> thing. 
and it gave me the shits. But he he didn't really have to deal with many um, sharks. He's actually the dude that gave me the nickname Shrek too. Funnily <laughs> enough, so um, now, a lot of serious guys around here swear by him and use him every single dive. Mm. Um, you know, there's some really well-known Spiros, Dan Silvera, and others who wear him religiously i just got to throw it on um i I, maybe i've got too comfortable diving in poor biz and everything else and i'm getting the guy on that that patented and made the technology he he, um you know the the guy from the company it's going to happen some sometime this year i haven't locked it in yet but um he's coming on the show there there was some testing done by um terra australis there's a YouTube channel. Um, one of the previous guests, Andre, um, he, he films for them. But they researched and they tested a bunch of these shark deterrent products. And the Shark Shield um, is the one that sort of had the most, uh, the, the best effect, I guess you'd say. Yeah. Yeah. But um, hard to run scientific experiments in an ocean environment with, you know, you, you know, given the nature of what you're trying to study, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, um, but yeah, I, I, I would be happy to hear what you have to say about them when you start wearing yours. So. And there's, um, there's a guy named Chris Oak. I think he's a marine biologist down in Southern California. He's had a couple gnarly encounters with white sharks and he's got video footage of it. One at Catalina Island. And I'm pretty sure he has video of a white shark, probably of the 12 to 14 foot range, skyrocketing at him at 30 miles an hour and veering off last minute because he was wearing one. Um, I think that's happened to him three times. <laughs> yeah, wow. Some some people are shit mag- oh, shark magnets. We use shit shark magnets, we'll call them. Like it seems like it, far out. I, I was wearing, I wear that uh, hex wetsuit sometimes. And, um, oh, yeah. Last time I was out, I just wore the hex top and not the bottoms. And I had this bull shark, and the bloody thing just followed me. I saw it on four or five dives, eh? The first time he snuck up behind me, and the jeepers would give me a fright. It was probably only about two and a half meters. But that's a big, fat, nasty-looking yeah. bully shark and shit fizz. <laughs> it was just not pleasant at all. And then, you know, like, you can't get a decent breath hold. My breath hold's already pathetic. And then I had in, <laughs> and then I had in the pressure from a shark, and I'm just like, oh, this is awful. But um, what do you do? I mean, you know, it's funny is, is uh, you know, when it, like you guys have to deal with so many different kinds of sharks and all over the world, you know, 20 different species of sharks coming off the reef who might, you know, come and bug you. We just have a big, you know, the big one. <laughs> who around. The, the worst one. <laughs> yeah. But it, what, what's crazy in Santa Cruz is from April to October, we have anywhere from 20 to 30 juvenile white sharks. So all in like the eight, 10 foot range, cruising all over the beaches um, and right outside the surf line. You know, people, you see drone footage from some guy on the beach and those four people on vacation have no idea there's a 10 foot white shark 20 feet outside of where they're buggy boarding. And they're just oblivious to it. <laughs> I used to do a lot of boogie boarding, eh? And, and now I, now that I spearfish, I think I'm, I'm more wary of bloody um, doing it. Like I like. I much rather be underwater than on the surface. <laughs> yeah, or even on the surface, but looking down so you can see mm-hmm. what's underneath you. But just <laughs> sitting there on a boogie board, just staring out, looking for you know the next decent wave that comes from out the back line. It's just like. I don't know. It, it doesn't seem like a smart idea anymore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. What about um? What about other scary stuff that's happened to you? Like, have you have you had any like near misses, like real stuff that 
really made you sort of change something that you do? Yeah, I um, in 2014, I was reaching for an abalone in a hole, maybe about 30 feet down. And my brother, brother-in-law was on the surface and I reached in the hole to get the shell. I couldn't get the shell out. I let go of the shell and I couldn't get my arm out. My flashlight got caught. And I, at first I started to panic, you know, I'm, you know, getting all crazy. And I started looking at, I remember looking at the surface and it started to rain and everything started to slow down. And then I just undid the thing on my wrist pull my hand out and came up, you know, but it just made me realize like, don't reach deep in holes with shit on your wrist. You know, stick your arm in a hole, you know, those kinds of like little tiny lessons, but Man, you know, I thought I thought I thought you were going to give me some profound like, and I had this <laughs> I had this moment where I realized I just needed to calm down, but that was just infinitely practical. <laughs> you know, little little things like that where, um, yeah, well, of course, you know, it's kind of you know keeping your cool as best as possible, but in the most practical sense, if you got shit hanging all over your wrist, <laughs> a flashlight, a lobster gauge, and everything, you don't stick it hand down there and then expect it not to get caught you know the, the things like that or pay attention where you stick your feet i mean i couldn't tell you how many times i've like been so focused on a lobster i wedge my foot or break a fin or get my you know ankle twisted or something because i'm just so focused on you know the hunt or the game i'm not thinking about where i'm flailing my <laughs> extremities everywhere um and I think it, it, it really is about just being comfortable in the water. That mm-hmm. I think that's the first thing. If you're uncomfortable in any way, shape, or form, then you're pretty much, in my opinion, you're kind of screwed. Mm-hmm. You're out of time. You're not, yeah. you know, breathe up. You're not focused. You know, something as simple as, oh, my fins are too tight. My foot keeps cramping. Or, you know, oh, man, I wish I didn't stab that urchin with my finger you know something like that <laughs> <laughs> um, just being comfortable and relaxed goes a long way goes a long way. i'm going to talk you i'm going to talk with you about gear and the next bit but um i wanted to show you like because you can see you've got the video camera people at home can't but this um company in western australia i'm going to get this okay. guy on the show his name's bert and he's got a company called old man blue how about that for us for a spike damn it's a big spike, isn't it? <laughs> and he, he said, like, all of his stuff, like, it's just really well made. Like, this is the cray bag. He's just sent me this stuff for free. Um, oh, nice. He sent me this cray bag, just, like, everything stainless, heavy gauge. Like, it's the sort of stuff you expect a commercial diver to use. And, yeah. um, and a couple of these cool shirts as well. I'm going to send this one to you. Oh, nice. Yeah. It's, Old so, man blue, I like that. It's cool, yeah. I thought you'd like it too. That's partly why I'm pulling it out. But I only arrived yesterday. I've got one as well, so I'll see. I was you wondering. One. I saw that. I was wondering what, what the old man blue was. Yeah, I, I I like it. I like the like the guys coming on the show. Like he, it sounds like he just nuts out on gear and stuff, and and he really yeah. cares about what he does. Like he's never gonna. It's not gonna be a multi-million dollar business. You know, he's making niche, really high-quality spearfishing gear for people that are obsessed and just froth on it. So. I, th- I knew you'd like that shirt, and you're about my size, so I'm going to send you that one. Awesome. Are you listening into this podcast thinking about your neglected spear guns down in the shed? But if you're like me, go to neptonics.com, buy yourself some new rubber, some new rigging, get your spear gun tip top 
so that you're ready when that fishing trip comes around the corner, you get the random phone call, we've got a weather window, the fish are running, let's get into it. Neptonics.com to sweeten it up, use the code NOOB10 to save 10% off storewide at Neptonics.com. Get those spear guns sorted, don't be like Shrek. So with, with gear, like, because it, it sounds like you're pretty tight as well, so you obviously spend money pretty smart. Yeah, I try to, and I try to, um, I used to make a lot of my own stuff, hmm. my own float lines, stringers, uh, you know, weight belt configurations, you know, dive knife holsters. Cause my father-in-law gave me a dive knife and I didn't have one. So I made one, hmm. um, you know, lanyards for my flashlights and everything. And then, you know, over time I, I bought, I bought some stuff, but, um, I've accumulated a ton of dive gear. I've got enough scuba gear to outfit three guys. I don't even scuba dive anymore. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I quite like getting in for a scuba dive, but I don't have time. Like, like you sort of said before, like you get obsessed with spearfishing, it kind of takes over. But yeah. the other part of it is like life's busy, and you, you know, mm-hmm. you get you get older, you have kids, you don't have time for more than one sort of pursuit. Yeah. So I can I can see why it would sit there. What kind of stuff have you learned, or what have you changed your mind about with um with spearfishing gear over the years? I think um, just really streamlining your gear as best as possible um, and then knowing it well. So, you know, tinkering with your gear, knowing how to take things apart, you know, knowing if you're going to take your weight belt off that if you're going to have your stringer attached, you got to take that off too because, you know, it can get tangled and caught up. One thing I do with my stringers, I attach it with a zip tie to Mm. a D loop instead of directly to the loop. Mm. Because if something grabs my stringer or it gets caught on something in an instance and I need to break it free, then I can. If it's yep. if I've got stiff Dyneema 1.9 mil tied directly to me. Yeah, yeah. So you know, what, do you, like what, do you, what do you tie it with? A zip tie? So I just put a zip tie around yep. uh, a D-ring that's on my belt. Yep. And then I attach the stringer to the zip tie and yep. it comes around the back. And I just shove it in one of the holes in my weight belt. I use uh, a Mercedes belt, the Neptonics belt. Mm. Things awesome. Super stretchy. Yeah, I love the, I love the Neptonic gear. I haven't seen I haven't seen something that they make or sell that I don't like. Like I'm not, I don't personally use a lot of it, but I haven't seen anything or heard of anyone going. Oh, that's no good. It's probably just because you, the only reason I think you complain about any of it is if you're trying to use it in the wrong application. But, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, their gear works. I, I mm. use it and. Yeah. Um, and who else? Do and they know? sponsor the podcast too now, so I have to give them a plug. <laughs> That's right. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you know, um, walk in my garage on the left-hand side, I've got black racks, eight feet tall. I've got all my GoPro stuff, multiple wetsuits. Um, I've got a dozen flashlights and everything you can think of. And um, I, That's I, the one I, thing is like if you upgrade gear, you don't get rid of the old stuff. It's, mm. you know, it becomes the backup of the spares or – I'll bring five lights on the boat because mm. I can't tell you how many times, like, okay, one breaks, I lost one. I don't feel like changing batteries on another. You know, I just, I ask Aiden, I bring enough gear every time we go for three divers just in case. Wow. <laughs> you know? lucky, lucky it's an 18 foot boat and there's probably only two or three <laughs> yeah, on it. So much room. <laughs> um, what I was going to ask was, like, are, are you, like, you're wearing a stringer around your belt, so you're stringing your fish on you? Yep. It's yeah, kind of, it's kind of, it's kind of like you guys can kind of get away with it, can't you? Well, the thing is, um, I've tried putting them on the float. Mm. Uh, 
I've anchored a float and swim back to it and put fish on it and then swim over where you're hunting. Mm-mm. Um, I've tried to drag them on the surface. Um, you know, it's probably not the smartest thing to attach fish to yourself, mm. but uh, I think, I think the, the, the not smart thing <laughs> is, is when people like use techniques like that you're using in your part of the world, like wearing a stringer of fish on your, on your waist. If you come and do that out here off Brisbane, like, I'm sorry, you're going to get eaten. Like it's game <laughs> over. Um, so like, I guess, you know, like n- knowing when to use some of those sorts of tricks is probably yeah. a, a, a smart thing. Do, do you get them tangled like in, in, in kelp and stuff? Is it when you, when you put them on a float line and stuff like that? Yeah, they get a lot really tangled in kelp. Um, if you have anything on, on the surface, really, it'll get tangled up quick. Um, you know, it's funny. Anybody listening is going to be like, wow, this guy's telling us to wear a tourniquet and scrap fish to our body. <laughs> <laughs> You're just like a regular commando. You've just got <laughs> shit strapped everywhere. Torches. No, but, um, they're, they're streamlined hanging off the back. And, um, you know, for shore dives, that's what we do. From the boat, though. Oh, we'll swim back to the boat and throw them in, throw them in the chest and then, you know, go back out. But we can anchor up, you know, in the area we want to hunt more often than not shore dive and you're swimming long distances to get to where you want to go. So what about funny stuff? You and Aiden, um, I mean, you had the snap fin lost spear gun moment, but um, um, well, apart from Aiden um, burling for a sheephead, uh, what other funny stuff you guys get up to? We had a funny moment. Uh, <laughs> we ran the boat about 280 miles in three days Mm. and we were on the last day and we're about 25 miles offshore and it just makes one of the high pitched whistles and and dies because it overheated and we're running the kicker and going like uh what half a mile an hour and we're thinking like is this really how we're gonna get back to shore (laughs) and it went on for like two hours and we're like this might be how we're getting back Oh wow! And after a while, you just have to go. Uh, you just have to laugh about it. I mean, obviously, I had the we had the radios and the GPS and all these things. I got one of those garments. I can send the SOS to the Coast Guard. And, but um, no, just those moments where it's like an oh shit moment, but it then becomes really you know comical to think. Well, at least you're dumbass. <laughs> at least you're in it with your mates. Yeah, like, yeah. Worse if you're by yourself. Um, yeah. All right, man. So we we chatted a fair bit about your dive bag. Was there anything else with equipment that we missed that you wanted to touch on? No, I'll just a uh, couple shameless plugs. Rich Red Triangle Spearfishing in Petaluma, California. They've got all the gear. Uncle Learn You How. If you want to get a Manny Sub roller head and some excellent rubber and that stiff Dyneema, he's your man. And then if you're looking for, I, I would argue the best teak spear guns made in California, Captain Bly out of San Diego. I've got two of his. I use a 36-inch mid handle in, in Central California, and the thing is just a battle axe. Gets it done every time. I've heard good things about the Captain Bly. You're also a bit of a Rob Allen pipe man as well, so it's funny. Oh, that- I love the Rob Allen, man. They're just uh, – they're like the uh, – they're built like a diesel, and they operate like a sports car. That's what I like to say about the Rob Allen. They're, they're so reliable. They shoot straight every single time. I bang this shit out of them on the rocks. You can throw it up on the shore. It doesn't matter. Those things work every time. I'm getting a big, uh, well, an American-style timber spear gun. I'm really looking forward to it arriving and, and getting in and giving it a test because, um, you know, a lot of the spear guns over here are pipe guns, you know, and there's a very much a culture of it. But when I do, have used wood in the past, I've really appreciated it. Like, the platform is just beautiful. Like, you, you do have to make some adjustments like tracking and so on, but... Um, 
I think sometimes the trade-offs are worth it. It just depends on yeah. on, on, on what you like, you know. It's very subjective, yeah. isn't it? You know those young blood guys, young blood mm. spearfishing? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the brother, Jocko, he looked like – it looks like he makes a pretty clean wood gun. Yeah, right, eh? But oh, check I think out. the thing with um, – that I like about the the wood is uh, the ballast. I mean, it, it's more precise. The gun doesn't, it doesn't even feel like it's in my hand. Mm. But out of the water, it weighs twenty pounds. Mm. Yeah, you know, it's just perfectly weighted, um, and it shoots so straight and accurate. There's no recoil. You know, you get you get that effect of a roller with no recoil with a big timber gun because it just mm. has all that. It's like a shooting platform, basically. Mm. sometimes like i position it like i'm shooting a damn harpoon like a small harpoon over you know a, a spear gun if that makes sense yeah 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 and if yeah, I, I love it mm. I, love, I love standing and i love being in the shit and then cleaning it and reteaking it and all that stuff yeah right eh? <laughs> i i um you know you probably heard me earlier like i used to say i'm not a gear guy i'm i'm getting better as i age a because i'm also tight <laughs> <laughs> But B, because like you just feel like a dick when you know something breaks on your gear and you're out and you and you don't know how to fix it, you know. And the problem yeah. with not doing it all and setting it up from the start is that, you know, you're relying on a store. You take it in, you guys in the store do everything for you. It's like when you're out, you know, on a multi-day charter, there's no one to hold your hand. Like if your gear breaks, yeah. like you really need to know how to fix it. Even even if you just start with the the little things, you know, like that's what I'm kind of doing. But um, yeah. well, it's also too. It's like um, if you owned a gun like a handgun, you would understand the mechanics, you would clean it. But then I see people with a spear gun that are just like, they don't do any of that. Like, yeah. Well, it's a tool. You're And a gun, you shoot at the range, this thing you're taking and your wife's going to make fun of you if you don't bring home dinner. So you need it to work. <laughs> you know? uh, but um, no, I'm all about, you know, knowing how it works, checking all your gear the night before, making sure there's no kinks in your armor. Otherwise, you know, you can get destroyed pretty quick. Yeah, awesome. Hey, man, let's let's hook into the last section of the show, Spiro Q&A, the faster round of questions. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right, what current change challenges are you facing in your spearfishing, and how are you approaching them? Well, the current challenges in my spearfishing are uh, all the other elements going on in my life with trees falling on the house and dogs <laughs> breaking legs and everything else. It's uh, really <laughs> impacting my time. But I think for me, um, I really want to increase my bottom time I do want to take a course. Uh, I want to learn more about the anatomy and biology uh, of free diving and, and, you know, how I can really kind of strengthen and hone on, on those weaknesses. Uh, what are you training for? Oh, just, uh, I mean, for me, I want to get into some bigger game species, get down to Southern California, you know, up here, we don't have any yellowtail or they're sea bass, but they're few and far between. Um, you know, just really get get after that. And eventually I want to get out with uh, Bly on lineage charters and, and try to go shoot these elusive bluefin that everybody keeps bringing in. I mean, yeah. uh, and like those, uh, what is it? Uh, the guys out of Melbourne, is it Southern Coast Spearfishing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Those Southern, guys. Southern yeah, Spearfishing, yeah. yeah. Southern Spearfishing, yeah. You know, it's like these parts of the world where these bluefin are coming in. We even had them here in California, Monterey Bay. People were catching, you know, 100, 140-pound bluefin. Um so I'm just rather to get after something bigger. It sounds like, um, you know, like here, it's very much been a success story of, of fisheries management. Is it the same there? You know, I'm not an expert on it. Um, I I think in the 80s, they had a big boom of bluefin, uh, maybe 10, 12 years ago. And then the last three, four or five years have been really good. 
I don't know if it's a fisheries management thing. To me, and what I've gathered, it seems that, you know, large schools that normally would be around Japan and other parts have mm-hmm. come around the ocean gyre and are really just honing in on the California coast. Okay. Uh, again, it could be, you know, ocean conditions changing their, their patterns or things. I'm not quite sure, but... Um, it's not typical to have, from my understanding, that many bluefin down there, and especially here in Central California as well. All right, two questions. Um, if you, if someone that is just starting comes up to you, you've got 30 seconds to give them advice. What is the advice you give them? Be comfortable. Be smart. Watch your buddy's back. That's it. Nice. That's 10 seconds. I like it. That's even better. <laughs> you guys are efficient in the Marines, not like the Army. Hey, very, we're Good very stuff. efficient. Everything's an acronym, and it has to take half the time it should. <laughs> <laughs> Last question is a philosophical one. Um, some people really enjoy it. Some people don't. Could you describe what the spearfishing experience means to you in one sentence? Sustainable ocean living. Boom. Yeah. Eric, Boom. where can people come and find you? Where can people come? Oh, and- they can find me at uh, on Instagram at Eric Janderson. Uh, and that's pretty much it. I deleted Facebook a while ago. Yeah. Couldn't do it. I was over it. <laughs> yeah, I can understand it completely, man. I recently deleted Twitter. That will never happen again. Um, Noob Spiro are now on TikTok, but I don't have much to do with it other than supplying some content. And um, I completely understand it, man. So Eric J. Anderson on Instagram. You've got a cool um, thing going on there, man. Like You have some good conversations. You share some cool posts, and you're very much – you know, like you sort of said, like you're into the lifestyle of spearfishing and that comes through yeah. loud and clear on your socials and, and in the conversations I have with you all the time. I'm looking forward to coming over and hanging out with you. Yeah, you, when, when you get this way, we'll get you out in some dirty water and, uh, and <laughs> some fish. <laughs> get Aiden to lay down a shit and I'll shoot something. <laughs> we'll get Aiden to lay some burly out. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, Eric. Catch you, man. As you can tell, uh, I've got a fair bit of a, a man crush on Eric. I really, really enjoyed chatting with him and learning about Central Cali diving. I really want to get over and hang out with him at some stage in the future. I'm going to try and make that happen. Um, follow Eric uh, Anderson on Instagram. If you want to find out about any of the links, like including the research about urchin barons mentioned up in today's show notes, just head along to noobspero.com forward slash Eric, E-R-I-C, and it'll all be there for you to take a look at, along with some photos of some fantastic diving there in Central Cali. In one week, we are back for possibly Noob Spiro's most controversial episode ever. It is the death pile phenomena it's more of a discussion type piece where we go backwards and forwards discussing the pros and cons of some of the photos where you know you see, you might see a hundred fish laid out on the ground with two people standing there um, the dock of death type photos they call them in america i get a whole ton of interviews done it's a really big episode really controversial i'm hoping you'll tune in and join me for death pile phenomenon if you love the show love it if you support it on an episode by episode basis at patreon.com forward slash but that's it for me today massive thanks again to eric over and out see you next week for death pile phenomena peace interesting message today if you are a budget conscious spiro head to spearfishing.com.au 
go to the clearance tab. There's a whole bunch of magic deals and bargains in there. Use the code NEWSPERA to save a further $20 on every purchase over $200. That's right, spearfishing.com.au. Clearance tab, you'll thank me later. All right, Shrek, per your request, here is the dumbest way to lose a brand new spear gun without shooting a single fish. Five months ago today, I landed in Fiji to follow my dream of shooting massive dog-tooth tuna and wahoo and sailing the South Pacific from hearing stories from my dad from long ago. It's been the past three months of getting the sailboat ready, fixing the dinghies, and being cooped up in a marina with stifling heats of over 40 degrees in engine rooms. We finally got the outboard and the dinghy ready, so we've started to do small trips out to the shallow reefs that are less than 10 meters, and the viz is less than a meter because of the construction and the constant downpour of rain. We can't get out to the outer reefs because our dinghy's not powerful enough. So I soon realized that my 140-centimeter gun is not adequate for these conditions. So we chip in and buy a affordable Rob Allen 80-centimeter and 50-centimeter for my friend Sia, who's a local who's taken interest in spearfishing. He's 15 years old and kind of discovering his first passion other than video games in diving, which I'm super excited about. So two weeks in, we're diving, and maybe about three feet visibility, and the biggest Trevelli I've ever seen swims in on me. And of course, he's just looking at my 80 centimeter and thinking, that's a toothpick. So next day, we come back, and I decide to bring my big gun out, trying to call him in for about an hour and a half. Nothing happens. No fish, can't see anything, super bad visibility. So we toss the gear back in the boat, and I'm being lazy. And I just toss my gun in. It's still loaded. Safety's on. And we start going back to the marina. We get to the entrance of the marina where it's about 15 meters. And I ask Sia just to unload my gun in the water. He tips it over the side, holds it, and shoots it. And then turns back to me and says, it's gone. I say to him, what do you mean it's gone? He was like, "It's, it's gone. So I jump over the side of the boat. Both my contacts blow out of my eyes. I see it dropping down. And then I hear another splash. And it's Sia diving in with me. And all I see is the dinghy going in slow reverse. So I have to make a call. I come up and I swim after the dinghy. Sia pops up. And just like that, a brand new wood gun disappeared with never having shot a fish. I think this is just a lesson to be extra cautious with what you think is okay or what you've done a thousand times and yeah, it's a lesson. Mm -hmm.